Chapter Fifty Nine of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Capital and Public Rights. Between the passage on June fifth, eighteen ninety seven, of the Mears Bill, so christened after the doughty representative who had received a small fortune for introducing it, and its presentation to the Chicago City Council in December of the same year, what broodings, plottings, politickings, and editorializing on the part of all and sundry, in spite of the intense feeling of opposition to Cowperwood, there was at the same time in local public life one stratum of commercial and phlegmatic substance that could not view him in an altogether unfavorable light. They were in business themselves. His lines passed their doors and served them. They could not see wherein his street railway service differed so much from that which others might give. Here was the type of materialist who in Cowperwood's defiance saw a justification of his own material point of view and was not afraid to say so. But as against these, there were the preachers, poor wind-blown sticks of unreason, who saw only what the current palaver seemed to indicate. Again, there were the anarchists, socialists, single-taxers, and public ownership advocates. There were the very poor who saw in Cowperwood's wealth and in the fabulous stories of his New York home and of his art collection a heartless exploitation of their needs. At this time, the feeling was spreading broadcast in America that great political and economic changes were at hand, that the tyranny of ironmasters at the top was to give way to a richer, freer, happier life for the rank and file. A national eight-hour-day law was being advocated and the public ownership of public franchises. And here now was a great street railway corporation serving a population of a million and a half, occupying streets which the people themselves created by their presence, taking toll from all those humble citizens to the amount of sixteen or eighteen millions of dollars in the year, and giving in return, so the papers said, poor service, shabby cars, no seats at rush hours, no universal transfers. As a matter of fact, there were in operation 362 separate transfer points, and no adequate tax on the immense sums earned. The working man who read this by gas or lamplight in the kitchen or parlor of his shabby flatter cottage, and who read also in other sections of his paper of the free, reckless, glorious lives of the rich, felt himself to be defrauded of a portion of his rightful inheritance. It was all a question of compelling Frank A. Cowperwood to do his duty by Chicago. He must not again be allowed to bribe the aldermen. He must not be allowed to have a fifty-year franchise, the privilege of granting which he had already bought from the state legislature by the degradation of honest men. He must be made to succumb, to yield to the forces of law and order. It was claimed, and with a justice of which those who made the charge were by no means fully aware that the Mears bill had been put through the House and Senate by the use of cold cash, proffered even to the governor himself. 
No legal proof of this was obtainable, but Cowperwood was assumed to be a briber on a giant scale. By the newspaper cartoons, he was represented as a pirate commander ordering his men to scuttle another vessel, the ship of public rights. He was pictured as a thief, a black mask over his eyes, and as a seducer throttling Chicago, the fair maiden, while he stole her purse. The fame of this battle was by now becoming worldwide. In Montreal, in Cape Town, in Buenos Aires, and in Melbourne, in London and Paris, men were reading of this singular struggle. At last, and truly, he was a national and international figure. His original dream, however, modified by circumstances, had literally been fulfilled. Meanwhile, be it admitted, that the local element in finance which had brought about this terrific onslaught on Cowperwood were not a little disturbed as to the eventual character of the child of their own creation. Here at last was a public opinion definitely inimical to Cowperwood, but here also were they themselves tremendous profit-holders with a desire for just such favors as Cowperwood himself exacted, deliberately setting out to kill the goose that could lay the golden egg. Men such as Heckelheimer, Gottlieb, Fischel, tremendous capitalists in the East and foremost in the directorates of huge transcontinental lines, international banking houses and the like, were amazed that the newspapers and the anti-Cowperwood element should have gone so far in Chicago. Had they no respect for capital? Did they not know that long-time franchises were practically the basis of all modern capitalistic prosperity. Such theories as were now being advocated here would spread to other cities unless checked. America might readily become anti-capitalistic, socialistic. Public ownership might appear as a workable theory. And then what? Those men out there are very foolish, observed Mr. Heckelheimer at one time to Mr. Fischel of Fischel, Stone, and Simmons. I can't see that Mr. Cowperwood is different from any other organizer of his day. He seems to me perfectly sound and able. All his companies pay. There are no better investments than the North and West Chicago Railways. It would be advisable, in my judgment, that all lines out there should be consolidated and be put in his charge. He would make money for the stockholders. He seems to know how to run street railways. You know, replied Mr. Fischel, as smug and white as Mr. Heckelheimer, and in thorough sympathy with his point of view, I have been thinking of something like that myself. All this quarreling should be hushed up. It's very bad for business, very. Once they get that public ownership nonsense started, it will be hard to stop. There has been too much of it already. Mr. Fischel was stout and round, like Mr. Heckelheimer, but much smaller. He was a little more than a walking mathematical formula. In his cranium were financial theorems and syllogisms of the second, third, and fourth power only. And now, behold, a new trend of affairs. Mr. Timothy Arneal, attacked by pneumonia, dies and leaves his holdings in Chicago City to his eldest son, Edward Arneal. Mr. Fischel and Mr. Heckelheimer through agents and then direct, 
approach Mr. Merrill in behalf of Cowperwood. There is much talk of profits. How much more profitable has been the Cowperwood regime over street railway lines than that of Mr. Shyhart? Mr. Fischel is interested in allaying socialistic excitement. So by this time is Mr. Merrill. Directly hereafter, Mr. Heckelheimer approaches Mr. Edward Arneel, who is not nearly so forceful as his father, though he would like to be so. He, strange to relate, has come rather to admire Cowperwood and sees no advantage in a policy that can only tend to municipalize local lines. Mr. Merrill, for Mr. Fischel, approaches Mr. Hand. Never, 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 says Hand. Mr. Heckelheimer approaches Mr. Hand. Never, 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 to the devil with Mr. Cowperwood. But as a final emissary for Mr. Heckelheimer and Mr. Fischel, there now appears Mr. Morgan Frankhauser, the partner of Mr. Hand in a seven million dollar traction scheme in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Why will Mr. Hand be so persistent? Why pursue a scheme of revenge which only stirs up the masses and makes municipal ownership a valid political idea, thus disturbing capital elsewhere? Why not trade his Chicago holdings to him, Frank Hauser, for Pittsburgh traction stock, share and share alike, and then fight Cowperwood all he pleases on the outside? Mr. Hand, puzzled, astounded, scratching his round head, slaps a heavy hand on his desk. Never, he exclaims, never, by God, as long as I am alive and in Chicago. And then he yields. Life does shifty things. He is forced to reflect in a most puzzled way. Never would he have believed it. Shyheart, he declared to Frankhauser, will never come in. He will die first. Poor old Timothy, if he were alive, he wouldn't either. Leave Mr. Shyheart out of it, for heaven's sakes, pleaded Mr. Frankhauser, a genial American German. Haven't I troubles enough? Mr. Shyheart is enraged. Never, never, never. He will sell out first, but he is in a minority, and Mr. Frankhauser, for Mr. Fischel or Mr. Heckelheimer, will gladly take his holdings. Now behold, in the autumn of 1897, all rival Chicago Street Railway lines brought to Mr. Cowperwood on a platter, as it were, a golden platter. We have it fixed, confidentially, declared Mr. Gottlieb, to Mr. Cowperwood over an excellent dinner in the sacred precincts of the Metropolitan Club in New York. Time, 8.30 p.m. Wine, sparkling burgundy. A telegram come just today from Frank Hauser. A nice old man, that. You should meet him some time. Hand. He sells out his stock to Frankhauser. Merrill and Edward Arneel work with us. We handle everything for them. Mr. Fischel will have his friends pick up all the local shares he can, and with these three we control the board. Shyheart is out. He says he will resign. Very good. I don't suppose that will make you weep any. It all hinges now on whether you can get that 50-year franchise ordinance through the city council or not. Heckelheimer says he prefers you to all others to run things. He will leave everything positively in your hands. 
Frankhauser says the same. What Heckelheimer says, he does. Now, there you are. It's up to you. I wish you much joy. It's no small job you have, beating the newspapers, and you still have hand and shy heart against you. Mr. Heckelheimer asked me to pay his compliments to you and to say, will you dine with him next week, or may he dine with you, whichever is most convenient. So. In the mayor's chair of Chicago at this time sat a man named Walden H. Lucas, aged 38. He was politically ambitious. He had the elements of popularity, the knack or luck of fixing public attention, a fine upstanding Healthy young buck he was, subtle, vigorous, a cool, direct, practical thinker and speaker, an eager, enigmatic dreamer of great political honors to come, anxious to play his cards just right, to make friends, to be the pride of the righteous, and yet the not-too-uncompromising foe of the wicked. In short, a youthful, hopeful, western Machiavelli, and one who could, if he chose, served the cause of the anti-Cowperwood struggle exceedingly well indeed. Cowperwood, disturbed, visits the mayor in his office. Mr. Lucas, what is it you personally want? What can I do for you? Is it future political preferment you are after? Mr. Cowperwood, there isn't anything you can do for me. You do not understand me, and I do not understand you. You cannot understand me because... I am an honest man. Ye gods, replied Cowperwood, this is certainly a case of self-esteem and great knowledge. Good afternoon. Shortly thereafter, the mayor was approached by one Mr. Carker, who was the shrewd, cold, and yet magnetic leader of democracy in the state of New York, said Carker. You see, Mr. Lucas, the great money houses of the East are interested in this local contest here in Chicago. For example, Heckelheimer, Gottlieb, and company would like to see a consolidation of all the lines on a basis that will make them an attractive investment for buyers generally and will, at the same time, be fair and right to the city. A twenty-year contract is much too short a term in their eyes. Fifty is the least they could comfortably contemplate and they would prefer a hundred. It is little enough for so great an outlay. The policy now being pursued here can lead only to the public ownership of public utilities, and that is something which the National Democratic Party at large can certainly not afford to advocate at present. It would antagonize the money element from coast to coast. Any man whose political record was definitely identified with such a movement would have no possible chance at even a state nomination, let alone a national one. He could never be elected. I make myself clear, do I not? You do. A man can just as easily be taken from the mayor's office in Chicago as from the governor's office at Springfield, pursued Mr. Carker. Mr. Heckelheimer and Mr. Fischel have personally asked me to call on you. If you want to be mayor of Chicago again for two years, or governor next year, until the time for picking a candidate for the presidency arrives, suit yourself. In the meantime, you will be unwise in my judgment 
to saddle yourself with this public ownership idea. The newspapers, in fighting Mr. Cowperwood, have raised an issue which never should have been raised. After Mr. Carker's departure arrived Mr. Edward Arneal of local renown, and then Mr. Jacob Bethall, the Democratic leader in San Francisco, both offering suggestions which, if followed, might result in mutual support. There were, in addition, delegations of powerful Republicans from Minneapolis and from Philadelphia. Even the president of the Lake City Bank and the president of the Prairie National, once anti-Cowperwood, arrived to say what had already been said. So it went. Mr. Lucas was greatly nonplussed. A political career was surely a difficult thing to effect. Would it pay to harry Mr. Cowperwood as he had set out to do? Would a steadfast policy advocating the cause of the people get him anywhere? Would they be grateful? Would they remember? Suppose the current policy of the newspapers should be modified, as Mr. Carker suggested that it might be. What a mess and tangle politics really were. Well, Bessie, he inquired of his handsome, healthy, semi-blonde wife one evening, what would you do if you were I? She was gray-eyed, gay, practical, vain, substantially connected in so far as family went, and proud of her husband's position and future. He had formed the habit of talking over his various difficulties with her. "'Well, I tell you, Wally,' she replied, "'you've got to stick to something. It looks to me as though the winning side was with the people this time. I don't see how the newspapers can change now after all they've done. You don't have to advocate public ownership or anything unfair to the money element. But just the same, I'd stick to my point that the fifty-year franchise is too much. You ought to make them pay the city something and get their franchise without bribery. They can't do less than that. I'd stick to the course you've begun on. You can't get along without the people, Wally. You just must have them. If you lose their goodwill, the politicians can't help you much, nor anybody else. Plainly, there were times when the people had to be considered. They just had to be. End of chapter 59